Welcome to This Is How, an ACLU of North Carolina podcast that unlocks the untold stories of justice, freedom, and activism from right here in North Carolina. We will explore how we can make change happen one voice at a time. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered to create a fairer future for all. And now, here's our host. Hi, everyone. I'm Calvin from the ACLU of North Carolina. My pronouns are he, him, his. Thanks for joining us on This Is How. Today, we've got an interesting discussion lined up with some truly incredible individuals. But before we dive into that, let's take a moment to address the current landscape for the transgender community. As of June 2022, a study from the UCLA School of Law reflected that an estimated 1.6 million people ages 13 and older identify as transgender in the U.S. Also in June 2022, the Pew Research Center published research about transgender identities in the United States, finding that more than 4 in 10 U.S. adults report knowing a trans person, and 1 in 5 U.S. adults report knowing someone who is non-binary. In fact, 27% say they have a trans friend, 13% have a trans coworker, and 10% say that they have a transgender family member. These numbers are increasing every year. It might seem as though there are more trans people now than there have been in the past, but trans people have actually been around from the beginning. Artifacts from 5000 to 3000 BC, as well as from 200 to 300 BC and the 4th century, have provided records of transgender and non-binary people existing and even holding prominent positions within their communities. Unfortunately, this regard for transgender people is not reflected in today's society. In fact, today, the transgender and non-binary community has experienced a national slate of hate, which includes pushing for anti-trans legislation and promoting hatred for and discrimination against those in the trans community. North Carolina is one of the many states across the country that is creating and upholding anti-trans ideals. If, like the rest of us, you live in North Carolina, then you probably know of the anti-trans legislation and rhetoric that has evolved throughout our state. You've seen the news, and we've even gotten some national attention. North Carolina legislature overrides governor's vetoes to enact three bills targeting transgender youth. NC's new anti-trans laws sow confusion around gender-affirming care. North Carolina bans transgender care for minors as Republicans override veto. In August, the North Carolina General Assembly voted to override the vetoes enacted by Governor Roy Cooper on three different anti-trans bills, passing them into law. There was SB 49, which restricts discussions on sexuality and gender identity in schools for young students, as well as mandates parental notification for name or pronoun changes. There's also HB 808, which bans gender-affirming care for minors, and HB 574, which bans transgender girls from playing on sports teams that match their gender identity. So what does this all mean? And what can we do to stand up, show up, and fight back? We are going to start the conversation off with Liz Barber, a lawyer and the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the ACLU of North Carolina. Well, as you said, Calvin, across the country, we've seen this slate of hate. The ACLU nationally is tracking over 501 pieces of legislation, this legislative session alone. And that number is an incredible increase over what we've seen in the past. So in that way, North Carolina is not an exception at all, but is an example of, of what we're seeing nationwide. And each one of these bills that you mentioned, those are bills that are taken out of a nationwide anti-trans playbook. What that is going to look like in North Carolina, some things we know, right? We know that 
gender affirming care for minors has been banned. Um, we know that some families who are able to or in financial position to be able to pick up and move out of the state, they'll do that. Other families will choose to, again, who have the resources to do so, will cross borders to get that care. We also know on the other side that doctors will leave North Carolina or will choose not to train in North Carolina or will choose not to come here in the first place based on these hateful laws that restrict medicine, that re restrict the ability of doctors to provide health care to their patients, health care that all the major medical organizations support and back and approve that are evidence-based. Um, so th that's sort of you know what we expect to see for the folks who aren't able to do that, who aren't able to pick up and either move permanently or leave to get healthcare in other places, um, they're not going to receive it. And when you combine that with the nationwide crisis in mental health for youth, the outcomes are going to be really scary. And it's going to take time for that to play out and for us to see that. Um, but I think that that's really a harsh reality that that we will see here in North Carolina. For SB 49, the Don't Say Gay bill, that one there's going to be more variation because it does rely so heavily on the school boards in interpreting it. And beyond that, each individual teacher interpreting what they feel comfortable doing. And there, there's the bark and the bite, right? There is some real bite to SB 49 of what you just can't do. But there's also the bark of like, maybe you could do that, but they're going to be intimidated and too concerned. Well, is it really worth it to me to take that with perceived risk in order to be able to address these issues? And it's also unclear because the way that the legislation, SB 49 in particular, was drafted isn't clear. Like, what does it mean to teach sexuality or gender identity, right? I have a kindergartner. And when he goes to school and they read a story about Bob and Sally, you know, mom and dad and, and their two kids, uh, Johnny and Susie, they're learning in that very basic story about gender identity. They're learning about sexuality. Do the folks in the General Assembly who are pushing that legislation, do they see that as, as a lesson about gender identity and sexuality? I think that they don't. But it is, but it, it they only see that it isn't because that's sort of like the air that they breathe and the water that they swim in, if that makes sense. But the real concern here is, I see it for, for each one of these bills, the sort of the direct impact that they have on individuals, right? The direct impact on the, the middle school girl who is unable to run on her cross-country team or the real impact of a kid who goes to school and their pronouns are reported back home and it creates an environment that isn't safe, or the kid who doesn't even feel safe in the first place to share that with their teacher. Those are sort of like direct impacts, the kid who's not able to access that healthcare. But then perhaps even more concerning is that the, the whole of these three, the impact of the whole of them is more than the sum of the parts. And by that, I mean that Together, it's just a wholesale attack on trans people and trans identity. So even, and, and beyond that, LGBTQ community. And it hurts all of us. It hurts all of our communities and it hurts us as a society to otherize and demonize people in this way. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You broke it down in a really concise and, and clear way. I think that 
these bills can sometimes be worded intentionally confusing uh, because they don't want people to really understand what their rights are and, and where the the parameters are. I know that when these bills were first passed, there was a lot of hopelessness and dismay and just a general feeling of like, what are we going to do kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think that a lot of people felt stuck. They felt scared. But I know that there have been some movements towards fighting back against especially HB 808. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So across the country, we've seen a lot of lawsuits filed regarding the sports ban. We haven't seen one in North Carolina, but there are other lawsuits that are farther along in the process. Sometimes litigators will decide there isn't any good reason to bring another case when there is already a similar case that's sort of further down that pipeline. And my suspicion is that's the case for the the sports ban. For gender-affirming care, Lambda Legal and some other organizations brought a case here in North Carolina. It's in federal court in the Middle District, and that's Voe versus Manfield. And so it will be interesting to see what happens there. But they challenge the bill. They challenge HB 808 both as a violation of equal protection and then also a violation of the ACA. The Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act. That's right. Okay. Based on sex discrimination. Okay. Okay. Well, that's it's, it's refreshing to see that things are happening. I would just say that you know, th- out of all of the sort of hate-filled legislation that we saw passed into law this session, one sort of theme that threads all of it is an attack on people's freedom, right? An attack on your freedom just to discuss things, to discuss things in interviews, your freedom to read things in schools, to teach things in the classrooms, to decide to end a pregnancy, to decide to play on a sports team, to decide to follow medical recommendation for your child and get them gender-affirming care. And so some of the same folks who talk about freedom right? You know, the freedom to send your kids to a charter school and the freedom of educational choice. They're the people who are really leading the fight and the attack on parental freedom to decide on, you know, the best outcomes and the best paths for their children and for everyone's freedom to know their own body and make choices over their own bodies. I'm wondering if um, you could share your perspective on like what these anti-trans laws tell society, specifically North Carolinians, how to perceive and understand trans identities. I think that one is that a lot of people who are driving this legislation would say that trans people don't exist, that it is not a real thing, or if that it is a real thing, it is an illness, that it is something bad, it's something to be afraid of, it's something to be pushed out of our schools, pushed out of our sports, uh, and is not deserving of healthcare. I think that it spreads the message that these people aren't deserving of you know participating in our systems. There has uh, been talk of it being considered a, a trans genocide, basically, of eradicating trans people from existence. Uh, they want to pretend that trans people don't exist and they want to make sure that trans people don't exist. Do you think that the people who make these legislations think that by doing so, people will either stop coming out as trans 
literally unable to transition or that like the trans trend will die down? Like what is their overall goal? Just control and eradication of trans people. So, you know, it's interesting that so many of these, uh, you know, bill sponsors and people pushing the bills say in the same breath, they say, I have nothing against trans people and then continue to say something incredibly transphobic. (laughs) Right. Right. Like, I just don't want them to have health care. Right. And so you can't this and right. You can't say that you have nothing against trans people and then try to strip their rights away. But yet we see that repeatedly and repeatedly. So you know, at, at best, it is it shows a complete misunderstanding of trans people, but it also shows absolutely no interest in getting to understand trans people, right? When we see these people spewing hate and misinformation about trans communities and then also challenging the books and trying to ban the books that would help them understand what it is like to be a trans young person— then it's really hard to take those people and their thoughts in and in, in the legislation that they're pushing in good faith. Absolutely. And it, it kind of follows that rhetoric of like, oh, you're you're trans by choice or you're trans by, you know, being exposed to these things. And that's really not how it works. Right. And, and one thing that we heard on the transgender affirming care for minors ban is, you know, the harm that it would do to their bodies. And so it just shows that they're unable or unwilling to accept that this is people's real identity, that it is who they are, and that this is healthcare, and it helps them be who they are, and it is not in fact a harm to them. So how would you recommend or encourage people within North Carolina to get involved in fighting back against these things? Sure, so I think that there are many ways to get involved. And I think sometimes any sometimes any one way seems like it's not enough, so it doesn't seem like it's worth doing. But someone recently told me, you know, there are a thousand different first steps and the most important thing is that you take one. And so that's one thing that I would encourage people to do. Um, one is just being informed, right? You've got to know who you're voting for. You have to know how they voted on past things. And you really need to dig in to see where people's stances are on, on these issues. You can't get too local. One thing that the anti-trans community and the anti-abortion community and the, uh, the folks who want to deny systemic racism, one thing that they have done incredibly well is gotten involved at the local level. And so mm. you have to show up to your local school, school board meetings or at the very least look and see, you know, what are they talking about? What are the issues? I think 90% of the book challenges in North Carolina were brought by only four people, right? That's a whole lot of power for four people to wield. And so we need to not only match that, but exceed that vote. And then also just reach out in your communities, right? Find out probably in your community, there are people who are trans. There are probably people who are organizing and be willing to have these conversations be willing to get involved, you know, with your neighbors, with your family, have those difficult conversations over Thanksgiving meal or whatever it is. And I think that there, I know that there are a lot of good resources about how to do that. Equality North Carolina here, you know, in North Carolina specifically, they've done a great job organizing and providing different webinars and seminars about how to fight back on SB 49, for instance, the don't say gay bill specifically. 
Uh, so I think that there are a lot of, of different options, but I think really it's just continuing this conversation and making sure people that those numbers that you cited at the beginning about how many people know a trans person, and that's that they know that they know a trans person. Right. There are a lot of folks out there who know trans people, but they don't know that they know trans people. Right. Um, and, and just not allowing this legislation to be successful as a way to demonize and otherize, but instead invite people in. I also hear you really putting an emphasis on community, which I think is fantastic because a lot of what these legislations do is they isolate you and they make you not want to be seen and heard because everybody's against you kind of thing. So the idea of like focusing on community and, and engaging with other people, I think is just a fantastic way to, you know, organize a movement. So yeah, I think that that's, that's fantastic. You talked about voting um, and being more aware of, of voting. Uh, can you touch on that a little bit and, and kind of explain if, if it's a party issue, if it's an issue of education, you know, what, what can listeners be sure. considering? Sure. So first off, and I think I touched on this before, is that voting at every single level of government, right? We're talking about the school board to your local judges to you know, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court to who goes to Raleigh and, and makes these um, laws. And second of all, it, it really isn't a partisan issue. It is an issue about people's freedom to be themselves. And while it has become a political issue, even though it shouldn't be, um, it should not be a partisan issue, right? I think that everyone should be able to come together on people's freedom to make decisions about their own body or freedom to make decisions for their own kids. These are constitutional questions. So I would look for statewide office. I would look to Equality NC. They're a great leader to see who they're endorsing. And those would be candidates who they have vetted to see where they come down on equality specifically. And then for more local races, equality is probably not going to weigh in on you know, your ju jurisdiction or your county but I would encourage people just to dig in and to look for answers to these questions, if that's in newspapers or going to forums. And if you don't see anything out there, uh, figuring out how you can reach out to the candidate and push them for their answers. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for being here with us and, and the energy that you're dedicating to this and for everything that you do. Well, thanks, Calvin. Thanks for having me here today. Liz's points about freedoms and autonomy are reflected in our next discussion with Johnny, a queer and transmasculine advocate and youth mentor from Caldwell County, North Carolina. Johnny works with organization Clever, as well as other community-based organizations that support the goals and development of queer and trans youth. Thanks for being with us today, Johnny. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we really dive in, I want, if, if you're willing, to just kind of talk about why the fight for trans rights um, is important to you? So obviously as a transgender person, I have seen the impact that um, discrimination, healthcare discrimination, um, bigotry in public and things like that have done to not only me, but other trans people. And especially as someone who works with and is around trans youth, it is difficult to kind of quantify the impact that it has on kids especially. And so to me, the fight for trans rights is more so just the fight for equality all around. 
there's a lot of intersectionality in there where you see um, the push right now against trans people and trans existence, if you will, also coinciding with assaults on um, welfare initiatives for low-income people. You see institutionalized racism in schools limiting the teaching of things like black history and cultural studies. And then you also have that element of sexism where you see a lot of the rhetoric used against cis women you being used now against trans women. And you just, especially the component, if I can use the phrase, all of transphobia is recycled homophobia. Mm. We're just seeing that 20, 30 year or so media cycle coming back now and it's hitting the trans community. And it has really become a useful target for those in power, those seeking to gain office that they can use to spark their campaigns and that they can use to rile people up, to get people angry especially because now in about the last 10 years or so, you're seeing trans issues and knowledge of trans people come into prominence for the first time. And so people are more so having this visceral reaction to what they do not understand. So thinking about HB 808 and SB 49, which directly impact trans youth, in your opinion, does this cause emotional distress or even trauma for trans and non-binary youth? Yes, absolutely. Growing up as a trans person, what many people fail to realize is just the trauma involved in that. And it's not necessarily some big event that happens in a person's life. It is all of the microaggressions, the lack of experiences, and the lack of support that young trans people face. These bills, especially HB 808, threaten um, the existence and the lives of young trans people by taking their access to life-saving medical care. And I mean that literally. These bills are not necessarily felt in the House. They are not necessarily felt by the people out there talking about them and advocating for them. They are felt by the young transgender person who's engaging in self-harming behaviors because they feel as if they have no future as a trans person. There is an overwhelming consensus that I have seen among younger trans people, especially in the um, 12 to 15 age category, I would say, that they just simply cannot envision a future in which they can survive. And that is especially alarming with the ongoing national youth mental health crisis. There was a survey in 2022 conducted by the Trevor Project, which supports a queer youth lifeline in the form of call centers, text chats, that sort of thing. The largest group involved in that study that experienced suicidal ideation and suicide attempts was transgender youth, particularly young transgender boys, with over 50% of these individuals considering suicide and nearly 20% of them having a suicide attempt in the last year. And it is not even with the mental health consequences. It is the social consequences as well. Trans girls are being barred from playing in sports, which prevents their ability to interact with their community and to engage with their school. Younger trans people, especially those in middle and high school who lack the access to gender-affirming health care, such as puberty blockers and hormones, are being kept out of spaces meant for them simply because they cannot pass as the gender they say they are, thus outing themselves as trans to a potentially hostile student body, and because they lack that ability to assimilate into the general cis population, which in places like North Carolina heavily limits their ability to engage with their school at large. And so all of this combined with the misgendering, the deadnaming, the lack of support they may have at home, that is just 
heavily traumatic. And so we are seeing young trans people grow up without the skills they need and without having the support they need to thrive. A lot of people don't know, don't understand, don't see what what goes on for trans youth. And that that kind of brings up a question that I'm interested in your opinion on of lawmakers. Is it that they are unaware of the impact that this will have on trans youth or that they don't care the impact it will have on trans youth? I would say that that, it heavily depends on who is writing these laws. When you see individuals out there putting into law that young people cannot access gender-affirming care, they may see it as doing a good thing. They are preventing them from wrecking their bodies or engaging in what they see as self-harm behavior, when in actuality they are doing the opposite. Some lawmakers are hostile towards the transgender community. A lot of the issues you see regarding bigotry towards the queer and trans community comes from a place of upholding hierarchy. You see people who are violently instituting patriarchy and cis-normativity so that they may keep trans youth and transgender individuals out of public spaces and out of society. We're seeing this rhetoric emerge heavily, especially from those far into the conservative sphere where they are advocating for the elimination of transgender people from public life. And that rhetoric is disturbing, it is outwardly hostile. But it is not only that which is harming the trans community, there's also neutrality. When you see people who are apathetic towards or people who simply don't care about trans people, they are complicit in these actions against them and they are complicit in that larger trans genocide. I think that a lot of people tend to take that neutrality aspect of like, oh, I don't want them to be harmed, but I also don't want them to be visible, um, which is harm in, in its own way. So thinking about that apathy, I mean, most trans people I speak with are in the fight, really invested. A lot of cis people, not so much uh, because it, it doesn't directly impact them. So what what are some ways that you as, as a trans person could rally cis people to care about this issue? Like, why should people care about an issue that doesn't impact them? I think it really starts personally at that interpersonal and at that local level. If people see what is being done to trans youth and trans people in their communities, it urges them to act forward. And you see, especially with a lot of people, they don't care about something unless it impacts them. So just seeing how many trans people there are, how many trans people they may know without even knowing that they know them, going back to those statistics you mentioned earlier, there is just an all-around need for people to be aware that trans people exist, that they are important, that they are important people to them. And when reaching cis people and with getting allies and those who may not necessarily support the transgender community to understand, it is important to let them know just how critical this is, how much of an overarching issue this is, and how much trans rights interconnects with all other areas of civil liberties. Paralleling the fight for trans rights with the fight for reproductive rights, and that is an incredibly productive way to look at this. When people are attacking trans people and trans communities, they are not necessarily just going after those who are trans. They are coming after anyone who they see as deviant, going against the expected norms of their society. And that's where you see conservatives especially upholding those hierarchies of what is normal, what is the air they breathe, and the water they swim in. Trans people need to become normalized in society so that we can start gaining that acceptance from cis people and so that we can start gaining those allies. I think that that kind of 
brings up something that I've been seeing recently on social media of cisgender people being misidentified as trans people and being attacked. Um, I think it's happened like a couple of times in the last few months. And I think that kind of like elevates this idea of like it impacts outside of the trans community. And I think people need to be aware of like how the the transphobia and anti-trans rhetoric can lead to further damages to all people. So education is an important uh, place to start. What what do you think would be one of the first steps towards educating the general public about this kind of stuff? So the first steps towards educating the general public are instituting awareness of trans people and trans issues in our media. What we have seen in the last few years coinciding with this rise of anti-trans rhetoric is the rise of trans people in television, in movies, in music, and things like that. Trans people are slowly becoming more integrated into public life, and that is an important place to reach cisgender people. When people see trans individuals represented on TV, for instance, they are not necessarily seeing what is accurate or what is true to most trans people. They may be receiving a biased or stereotyped depiction, as is often the case. And so it really starts with reforming this media perception and in altering the stereotypes about trans people that many individuals in the general society hold. And once people are able to understand the existence of trans people and able to conceptualize them as just another group that exists within society, they may be able to learn more about them. What you mentioned with cis people being attacked for being thought of or misconstrued as being trans, that is incredibly worrying because it shows the harm and hostility inherent to transphobia and how transphobia has become so entwined with things like misogyny and our own social perceptions on what it means to be one gender or another. So when you have those positive representations of trans people in media, people can come to better understand the academic side of what it means to be trans which is which is what has largely been misrepresented as individuals are seeing this odd depiction that is not true to life of trans people and trans bodies and assuming that they are the experts on trans existence. You see this not so much now, but a few months ago, there was a largely spread conspiracy theory dubbed transvestigation in which people would take images of public figures and celebrities and analyze them in Photoshop and different web tools to try and prove that they were transgender by looking at the proportions of their bones or their body type. And when people assume that they can do that and when they assume that they can just identify a trans person, that is when you run into the realm of danger. Yeah, I didn't know about that. That is disturbing, honestly. Um, and scary, you know, and I think that a lot of passing this rhetoric is to continue that fear of speaking out. You know, they want trans people to be afraid of being seen. They want trans people to be afraid to like stand up and, and be seen and heard. And that what, what better way to stop a group of people from talking than to scare them out of it? You know, uh, when there's physical harm and you know, you never know what area is safe because, there's so much, like you were saying, misrepresentation. I'm not hearing a lot of trans people talking about trans issues in the public light. It's a lot of like, oh, you know, trans people are doing this and trans people are doing that. And it's not really ever accurate. And also saying a whole group of people does one thing is problematic in itself. So I think that it takes a lot of 
energy for trans people to show up for the fight. And, and you were talking about the mental health of, you know, the youth that, you know, are suffering and then adults who are adult trans people who are trying to show up and, and be part of the fight. And it can be exhausting and it can be discouraging and, you know, impact mental health in general. So, you know, you're someone who shows up and, and stands up for this kind of stuff. How do you take care of yourself and how do you find encouragement and empowerment in moments where it feels like you're just really working against a wall? So for me, finding that hope and encouragement, it starts with history and community. I'm someone really interested in our community's past and in trans people who've come before. And I find a lot of strength from people like Lou Sullivan, who trailblazed for the trans community and who came out. Lou Sullivan, especially, who spent months with psychologists and psychotherapists fighting for the ability of queer trans people to transition, who spent most of his life fighting in public for trans issues. And so when I see people from the past who were able to come out and do that, it inspires me to move on, to work, to progress our trans community, and to undo this wave of traditionalist rhetoric that has come over general society. And that really starts with finding community, with finding organizers around you, and finding advocacy groups and social groups made up of queer and trans people that are actively going out to support queer and trans people. I promise for anyone listening, wherever you are across the state, even in the most rural areas, even in the most conservative areas, there exist groups of queer and trans people fighting for queer and trans people. No matter where you are, there is always another trans person here. We are here, we have been here, and we will be here. Queer people and transgender people, above all of this, we will prevail. And that is why I believe, uh, even though there is an ongoing trans genocide, I believe that could be considered a misnomer as you can never fully eliminate trans people. Even if all of us were to be exterminated as they wish today, a new generation of transgender individuals would be born. There is no eliminating that idea of transition and of bodily autonomy from society. And that really gives me hope. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Like, I, I know that there's people listening that needed to hear that. Um, and so I appreciate you being open and vulnerable in that way. That is a very encouraging idea of like continuing on with the fight because there are going to be generations after us, um, just like there were generations before us doing the work, you know, for trans people and for cisgender people. How would someone get started in getting involved? You know, I know you mentioned like finding organizations that are local. Do you think that is the best way to start in terms of advocating for trans people? Yes, I believe that finding those people in your area is critical. You cannot survive without a community and you especially cannot get things done. You as a single person, you may be able to run a media campaign. You may be able to organize a group. You may be able to do whatever it is you want to do to support transgender people, but you will not have that backing or support or those resources that would be available to you. And it really does start local. It starts with petitioning your school boards to prevent the enforcement of SB 49, to prevent trans youth at the local level from being outed to their parents and from being harmed because of it. It starts with going to your city council and your city managers and 
advocating for the inclusion and the celebration of queer and trans people within society. I live in Mooresville, which is near the Charlotte area, and we recently had our first Pride Parade on October 14th. And that was a monumental event for the community because our organization, Clever, had fought so long against a heavily resistant county and incredibly resistant community. But ultimately, we saw a tremendous show out. We saw much support. And our kids, the kids in our community, trans youth, queer youth, queer adults, all saw and felt that they were supported by those in their community. And that's what's important. Definitely. I'm, I'm overjoyed to hear that you had your first pride. I think that that is a fantastic step in the right direction. Um, and back when I was living near Mooresville, I would never have imagined that that would have been something that happened. So I love to see that. I love to see things developing and, and becoming more inclusive, even in areas that don't necessarily have a history of being an inclusive space. But the impact that that can have on, on youth seeing, you know, adults and other kids that are celebrating identities. Um, I always say that there's a difference between tolerance and acceptance and celebration. You know, you can tolerate somebody and that feeling is very different than when somebody fully accepts or celebrates who you are. Um, and Pride does that. So would you mind kind of telling us a little bit more about, about what Clever is, what you guys do, all of that stuff? So Clever is at its core a local youth support group, which is focused on giving queer and trans kids an outlet that they can interact with others, that they can learn, and that they can come to accept and understand their own queer and trans identities. It is also an educational organization where we are not only supporting the education and success of these queer and trans youth, but also of the community through sharing advocacy material and through educating on queer and trans issues. And so Clever as a whole is just about making sure trans youth know that they are supported, making sure they know they are not alone, and making sure they know that there are others like them so that they can see how to, so that they can conceptualize that future as a queer person. And so that they know they are loved, they are supported, they are upheld, and that they have that community to fall back to in times of crisis. Love that. I love that. I love that 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 organization is doing that. I love that you're part of it. I think it's so, so necessary. I know that having a support system can make a world of difference in the life course of, of a trans youth. So I'm so happy that that's happening. Obviously, activism is very important to you. What kind of inspired you or got you into activism? So I came of political age in 2016 when I was about 11 or 12 when Donald Trump was being elected. Mm -hmm. And I saw the harm that that was doing in my community and the hostility that was growing around me. And I started engaging with news and media and politics and forming those opinions and just seeing what was being done and developed my own reactions as to the inherent wrongness that many of those policies had. Like um, what was going around at the time, build the wall, the transgender military ban and things like that. And so I grew aware that there was a whole sector of society out there dead set on harming and oppressing those that were not like them. And I began developing my advocacy through engaging with other means 
and just by developing my own skills like that in speaking, management, organizing, so that I would be able to be a force in my community so that I could try and rectify some of those ills and to influence people and to let them know what was going on and why it was wrong. And so a big turning point for that for me was the ACLU Southern Collective National Advocacy Institute I saw the page on the ACLU Nationals website and immediately knew that I wanted to be a part because I am not only a transgender activist, I am an Appalachian activist and I'm an mm. activist for Southern people. Especially in progressive spaces today, I see an allowance and a pass for classism and mm -hmm. for anti-rural ideas and for the stereotyping of rural and Southern individuals as lazy, ignorant, stupid, those sort of things that we've seen for decades at this point. Mm -hmm. And so when I applied for the National Advocacy Institute through the Southern Collective, I was just anticipating to see other people who were from these Southern states, who were in places that they cared about the things that I cared about, and who were willing to go up and fight for it. And that was exactly what I got when I was there. When I attended the Institute, it was just overall an incredibly life-affirming experience for me, knowing that there were so many other dedicated people there and that there were so many young people like me doing incredible things in states all across the South. Just seeing how big of a push there was against book banning, against um, the repeal of reproductive rights, and for queer people especially, it was just an incredibly impactful moment. And so I took what I learned there back to my organization, the organizations I work with in my community, such as Clever, Safe, and other local groups. And I've been able to take what I learned there and use that to educate individuals and to train them on how to act and how to be advocates. Amazing. I, I, I think that that's fantastic. I, I really like what you said about being an Appalachian advocate. I think that that is a huge conversation and, you know, a great also place to educate others on even trans existence in the South, queer existence in the South, and how that's tied up in Appalachian culture. So I love that you said that. I love that, you know, you found that inspiration and that guidance uh, through through that. So you've shared that advocacy and activism for trans youth is, is, is very important to you. Um, but I'm wondering if you would be willing to kind of share a little bit about your own journey um, as a trans person and, and if there were resources available to you um, and what that looked like for you. Yes, abs absolutely. I'm an advocate for trans youth now, but I was myself a transgender child. Growing up, I didn't know any queer people, any transgender people. I had never even heard those words. As someone who has been enrolled in North Carolina public schools all of my life, going back to the educational issue, I have never been taught about queer or trans people, queer or trans history, queer or trans health topics. The existence of queer and trans people never brought up in my 18 years now of education. And it's startling to me looking back on that and knowing just how many more people could have been reached had those issues been brought up, including myself. So I found the language, the word transgender, when I was around 11, and that would have been 2016, 2017, before the larger trans controversy arose, but also before uh, emphasis on trans youth and trans healthcare came about. So when I was first coming into my own 
I had no resources. I had none of that support that are that is available to trans youth today. I had no idea that things like hormone blockers or HRT even existed, let alone that they were options for me that I could pursue. And once I began formalizing in a way and coming into my own transgender identity, that was disrupted for me because I was enrolled in conversion therapy. Mm. It is a massive issue that is not talked about and is not talked about enough that impacts so many trans youth, even um, subtly. It is not often recognized or thought about as a serious problem today, but it is. And there are still hundreds of thousands of young queer and trans people out there in conversion therapy programs today. And so coming off of that and coming to revitalize and to newly understand my trans identity, I thankfully was able to come out of that experience relatively unscathed because I knew in myself that I was a transgender individual and that I would ultimately prevail. I was able to hold on to that sense of hope through just looking at other trans people and knowing that that could be me someday. And so I was one of the thankful, lucky people able to start my transition as a minor. I was able to start testosterone at 17 through informed consent with parental approval. And so that allowed me to begin medically transitioning. And I know many people out there begin socially transitioning before medical transition, but that was not tenable to me. And so it's been in the last year or so that I've been able to come out in public with other individuals and just exist as a trans person and to be publicly engaged with trans issues. And that has been such a revelation and it has been just such an incredibly affirming thing for me to be able to come out into the open and advocate and to support those trans kids who now have the opportunity to have what I lacked, that support that I lacked, and also just incredibly disheartening to see that taken away from them. I personally know so many young people who would benefit from things like gender therapy, hormone blockers, HRT, who are now unable to get them because of the legislation being passed today. And it just breaks my heart for those trans kids whom they know that that's available to them, but that is just being kept from them for ideological reasons. Thank you so much for sharing. It sounds like it was a, a tough journey for you, but I loved that you said that you knowing your transness helped get you through that. And I think that that highlights how important it is that youth are able to pursue things that they know about themselves. It goes back to that idea of like, no one knows you as well as you know you. And I think that that kind of drives home that point of like trans kids know themselves and should have the freedom to make those choices. And so thank you so much for sharing that and, and really like diving into your experiences. You know, I, I agree with you about the conversion therapy. I don't think people even think it's a thing anymore. And it is. And, and speaking up about that is, is very important. So I, I'm sorry that you went through that. It, that broke my heart hearing you talk about it, but I'm, I'm glad that you're speaking about it. So we're, we're about to wrap up, but before we do so, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? Anything you want uh, people to be aware of or know about or any parting words? I think it's just important for people in communities that know trans people and are a part of these trans spaces to support trans people, especially trans youth. 
you really never know who is struggling, who, what child around you has an abusive or a hostile home life, who isn't being affirmed, who's experiencing bullying at school, who is dealing with suicidal ideation or self-harm. And so it is important to be there to show up, to show up for trans youth and queer people around the state and in your community to make sure they know they are supported and to know they are loved and to appear for the organizations in your area so that they know they have a support base and volunteers and the resources they need to get things done. I would especially encourage people to look at cleverasone.org, which is the website associated with the Clever organization and that there's a variety of resources, a variety of links, things that people can look at to get involved with advocacy and to maybe inspire them to work in their community. And I would just urge anyone in positions of power, anyone who knows trans people, anyone who's involved with local organizing, to please, please look into these issues and to hold the safety and value of trans people with you so that you can uphold the community and support them for the future. I could not agree more. That was beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your time and encouraging me and other folks who are listening. So thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Calvin. Thank you so much, Johnny and Liz, for joining us today on This Is How. Understanding anti-trans legislation and rhetoric in NC, as well as the impact this has on trans youth and the trans community, is extremely valuable. This is only the beginning of a necessary and ongoing conversation that needs to be continued wherever and whenever possible. Thank you both for your continuous contribution towards trans justice and equality. We want to reiterate that the ACLU of North Carolina stands with the transgender and non-binary community. We will continue to uplift trans and non-binary voices and fight for equal rights, freedoms, and bodily autonomy throughout the state. Trans existence, trans happiness, and trans safety are essential for a better future. The ACLU of NC wants to see the trans community not only survive, but thrive in this world. In our next episode of This Is How, we have a conversation with King Sage, a storyteller, artist, and teacher based in Durham, North Carolina. We will discuss King's experiences, as well as the intersectionality of Blackness and transness. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining This Is How, brought to you by the ACLU of North Carolina. If this episode resonates with you, we challenge you to take action. If you go to aclunorthcarolina.org, you'll find ways to donate and volunteer. Join us on social media as well. And if you like the show, share it with your network, subscribe on YouTube or podcast app, or give us a rating at ratethispodcast.com slash A-C-L-U-N-C. This episode was edited and produced by Ear Fluence. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon on This Is How. We would like to provide some resources for trans and non-binary people throughout the state of North Carolina, as well as some that are nationwide. The Trevor Project at thetrevorproject.org, EqualityNC at equalitync.org, Gender Spectrum at genderspectrum.org, It Gets Better at itgetsbetter.org, PFLAG at pflag.org, Southerners on New Ground at southernersonnewground.org, Trans Lifeline at translifeline.org, Safe Schools NC at safeschoolsnc.org, 
Transgender Law Center at transgenderlawcenter.org and the National Center for Transgender Equality at transequality.org.